Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us and help us to see what you would want us to see from these, this section. And we ask your great blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah 8, we're going to be starting at verse 11. Uh, we've been talking about all the pestilence and calamity and trials that are, going to, that are falling on Jerusalem and Israel. Uh, and then he starts talking to Israel about their irreligious ir ways of thinking and their impenitence on it. And this is where we have left off as we start in verse 11. But I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, read back to verse 10. Therefore will I give their wives unto others and their fields unto them that it shall inherit them. For everyone from the least even to the greatest is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people, slightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They are, were they ashamed that they had committed abominations? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush, neither shall they fall among them, among them that fall in the time of their visitation. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. I will surely consume them, says the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree, nor the leaf that shall, and the leaf shall fade, and things that I have given them shall pass away from them. So here's God's judgment completely on Israel. He's been talking about all the bad things that were going to happen to him. And then he says, And they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And I think this is such a very interesting statement. This word for slightly li literally means insignificantly. You know, so when he's saying slightly here, he's going, it's not, even a, it's not even a deal. They haven't even healed them by saying peace, peace. And you know, when I'm thinking about in our day and age, how many people are trying to tell us that there's peace? Even in our governments, you know, they're trying to say that there's peace. Don't believe what you see. Don't believe what you hear. Everything is going to be okay. Our government, tell, you know, uh, the, the Biden administration telling us, don't worry about the inflation. It's, it's only temporary, and it's not going to affect you as we can't afford to buy anything. And we're told that we're at peace when there's wars going on all over the place. You know, and, we, and we see this all the time, the lies how many times do we tell ourselves that our life is at peace when we're outside of God's will? Or we have others tell us, you're at peace. Everything's going to be okay. You listen to the way the world thinks and talks, and everything's going to be okay. You know, there's no judgment at the end of this. You know, when you die, you die, and there's no, no judgment. Uh, or God will accept everybody. It doesn't matter what you do. Uh, you know, everything will work out in the long run because the, the balance scales will always balance out because of the yin and yang and all these other things that they will tell you that everything is at peace. Things have not been at peace in this world since Adam and Eve sinned. It has been in commotion and in trials and difficulties for 6,000 years. <laughs> And over and over, God says, the world is saying, peace, peace. Even Jesus says that. When they're crying, peace, peace, there is no peace. So we see this over and over again, this repetition of the lie of the world. The lie of the world that everything is going to be okay, whatever, however they're going to define peace. And the other part about that is every time we turn around, the Bible is repeating itself anyway, because God knows that we forget. <laughs> Uh, and for people with good memories, it makes it very difficult because it seems like we keep teaching the same thing over and over again. And we are. <laughs> uh, because God knows most of us forget. <laughs> and so here we are looking at them saying, and, and it says this healing of them with this false, false narrative is insignificant healing. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about people, and I've heard, I've heard people go, well, just because there's nothing new under the sun doesn't make me feel any better about the bad things that happen. I'm going, I understand that, but there's still nothing new under the sun. You know, because that does make me feel better because there's nothing new, but it just tells me that we're repeating everything all over again and over again and over again and over again. Nothing changes. And the good news on that is Satan doesn't change. Satan keeps repeating the same lies, the same attacks 
over and over again. He kind of dresses them up a little bit different clothes. He changes the words a little bit, but they're the same attack. You can be like God. And that is what all false religions work on, work on that whole idea of you can be like God. If you do just enough good things, you're going to be pleased by God, and God is going to say, well, you've, you've become so much like me that I'm going to accept you. If you do reincarnation enough times, you'll finally get it right, get it right after a while. Uh, and, you know, you can be your own God by making your own decisions on what's right and wrong. You know, his lies are the same over and over and over again, just slightly slightly dressed up a little bit different, uh, presented a little different, but it's the same basic lie. And here God is saying, you're trying to help each other by saying everything's at peace. And in Jeremiah's day, they were saying that. We're, we're surrounded, we're going to lose it, you know, you're going to lose this battle, and you're going, well, we got God's temple in here. God will never let his temple be conquered. We'll never be taken away because his temple is right here. And that was their attitude. No, because the people worshipped the temple. They didn't worship God. They worshipped so the dwelling place of God. Mm, they were lying to themselves. Yeah. We can do whatever we want. It doesn't matter what God told, told us to do because God dwells in that building at the top of the hill and he's never going to let that building that he dwells in get conquered. That was their mindset. Same mindset when Jesus was around. You know, God dwells in that building over there and we're never going to be con totally conquered. Even though the Rome's, Roman city, uh, uh, nation is over us right now, that is God's temple. It will never fall and we will never totally leave our, lose our city because that building sits up there. And certain people in churches sometimes think that way. There's God's building over there. It, nothing can happen to us because we are in God's building. You know, we need to be very careful about how we look at it. And their problem was they worshipped the building. They worshipped the traditions and didn't worship God. Their worship went to idols. They came in on Saturday and they offered their, they offered their sacrifices because that's what they were told to do. And it was part of their tradition. We're going to the, where God dwells and go, out, go ahead and offer it. But the God that I'm worshipping is over there on that hill uh, in that other temple. <laughs> It was ritual. Follow the ritual. And too many Christians do the same thing. I'm following rituals. You know, how do I please God? I read my Bible every day. I pray to him. I go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whenever the doors are open, whatever definition of honoring God is to you. And because I'm doing my rituals, I'm at peace with God. Doesn't matter whether I know him or not. Doesn't matter whether, you know, we have a relationship. I'm doing the rituals. And this is the way the Jewish people were looking at. We're at peace because we're doing the rituals. We're not happy. We're not pleasing. We're not, we're not really, we don't, we're not greatly blessed by it. We're just doing. And that's where they were at with this. And it says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Now, this is kind of an interesting word because ashamed means, in this case, made dry. Their spirit dried up. Were they drying up in their relationship with God? by the abominations that they were doing. And this is something that we as Christians also have to be looking at. Are the things that we're doing bringing living water of Jesus Christ into us or are we drying out through the rituals? I've met many people that are drying out. I'm just, I've got to read my Bible this week. Okay, well that's wonderful. You mean you've got to read it or you want to read it? You know, and they'll always correct it to, I want to read it, but I know what they meant the first time was, was probably true. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this because this is my rituals and it's nothing but dry sawdust and bones that I'm chewing on instead of living water because it's not the relationship of God. And we all get there at some point in our, in our lives that, you know, for some period of time where we just get dry and it's usually because we have just started doing the ritual. I do this because I have to do this, not because I want to worship God. And when we get to that place, it is hard. That is when you look at your Bible and go, oh, uh, how much of my Bible do I want to read today? 
Here's my prayer list. Oh, man, I've got to pray. God, you're, not, you're never answering any of my prayers anyway. Why am I praying? Oh, you want me to go to church, God? You know, it's so far away. I've got to drive a half a mile to go to church. You know, or for some of us, <laughs> I've got to drive 30 miles to go to church. You know, but what is our attitude toward it? Is it ritual or is it to follow God and to serve God? And I've been there myself where I've just fallen into the ritual. Usually it's because I've gotten so busy. I've gotten out of the word of God, not following, you know, I'm going to church just because I need to go to church. And there was a time when I was going to church after 80, 90 hour work weeks and sleeping in church. You know, I was in church you know, physically, but I wasn't in church in any other way because I was just dead tired. I should have just stayed at home and gone to bed because I would have got a better sleep in bed than I would have been in the pew, in the, in the chair at the church. Especially with my wife poking me with the ribs with, my, with her pen, you know, to wake me up. So, but it was a dry spell. I was getting too busy, too, too act, uh, active, and I was drying out. And he's saying, in his case, he's saying, you aren't drying out. You're, you're, you're just doing these things and it's not making you dry. It's, you're not being affected by it. And it says, no, they were not ashamed, neither could they blush. And we have talked about this one again also. We talked about this idea of blushing. Jeremiah talks about this a lot. He goes, was there enough shame that people were truly ashamed to be seen the way they were seen? And now I think about it, in our day and age, you know, people don't know how to blush in our day and age. Uh, we're all older, you know, if you think about this, the styles that are being worn today, even some of what's considered modest in today's world, <laughs> if it was worn 30, 40 years ago, people would have looked at it and go, how can you come dressed like that? And I'm not just talking about wearing pants or, you know, I'm talking about some of the clothes that don't cover anything in what we consider to be modest in our day. You know, and this is what the, Jeremiah is saying. You're doing things and you don't even have a sense of propriety being violated. You know, and this is what he's saying. You're here worshiping God and you're up in the temple worshiping God, the gods, the false gods, the idols. And when you're here worshiping God, you have no propriety. You don't even recognize that you've been doing wrong. This is quite a statement. He's coming hard on these, on these people to say, you don't even know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall in the time of their visitation. They shall, cast, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. The term their visitation refers to the judgment that's coming their way. All right? Jerusalem is going to fall. God is going to cast it down. In spite of all of their hopes and their trust in the temple. And this is something that is very important. Where is our trust when we go through hard times? Is our trust in God or is it in my activities and my traditions about God? And we need to be very careful that it's not in traditions. Because then we look and that's when you hear somebody say, well, I tried God and he didn't work. Well, the only problem is you don't try God. You totally surrender to God, and he never lets his children down, ultimately. Now, our problem is that we live in time, and we think that God has let us down if he doesn't do things the way we think he should be doing them. You know, well, you know, God, uh, I was in a lot of pain for a long time, and you didn't do anything for me, so you must not be answering my prayers. So therefore, I'm not going to, answer, I'm not going to pray anymore. I'm not going to follow you because you didn't do things the way I thought you should do them. Now, ultimately, we're not going to be that bold and that blunt with God, but we do, that, we do say that when we just say, okay, God, I give up. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not serving you the way that I've served you because it has been pointless. You didn't bless me the way I expected to be blessed. Now, the problem with that statement is, number of it, first off, whoever told you that God was going to bless you for service? There will be rewards, but not necessarily in this lifetime. There will be great pleasure in serving God overall. You know, I can say that I love being a pastor. 90% of the time, I fully enjoy being a pastor. 
But there are times when it is just a job. And I have to work through those times. And if I'm judging my life as a pastor from the, from the 10% that's no, not fun, then I could be giving up real quick and easy. And we need to be able to look at this and say, God, you have a blessing when you finish the books. And this is what we have to understand. When we're judging our life and saying it's been worthless serving God, we're judging the books before they're closed. Now, when does God close the books? The day our soul leaves our body and goes to heaven. Then he closes a book and says, here are your rewards. Now, we get temporary word rewards down here on the earth. We get temporary victories on earth. And most of those are to help us continue to go forward. But we need to be looking at what used to be called the providence of God. God is in charge. He does what he wants. And because we are his creation, he can do what he wants with us. And, you know, I can't remember which one. I think it's Jeremiah when we get there. He went to the potter's house and he says that God is the potter. And the, he says the potter creates the pot and he decides what that pot or bowl is going to be used for. You know, he goes, some of them are used at the dinner table. Some of them, to be, you know, the way he puts it, are used in the bathroom. And he goes, you're not in control of how you are going to be used. You are the pot that God has made. And, you know, we're looking at, God, nothing, nothing good has happened in my life. He goes, but you're doing exactly what I want you to do. Yeah. And Jeremiah is one of those great examples. He was told that nobody was going to listen, and, and he preached for several kingdoms. You know, and God said, you're going you're gonna to preach, you're going you're gonna to declare my word, and nobody is going to follow you. Now, how would you like to be called by God saying you're going to preach for the rest of your life, your whole life. You're, you know, Jeremiah was a young child when he started, a young man. And God says, you're going to preach for 50 years, 60 years, and nobody's going to listen. And I still want you to keep preaching. I don't know that I would like that call. I don't know that I would like to be told nobody is ever going to listen to you. Then why should I preach? <laughs> that could very well have been the answer. And Jeremiah did at one point say... God, I am tired of this. I am not going to say anything anymore. And then the very next sentence says, Your, his word burned in my mouth and I could not help but speak. Because God had told him you're going to do that. And even when he was going to quit, because he was tired of it, because every time he spoke, he got thrown into prison or into cisterns or in, into all kinds of things that were not nice and beat and punished. And he finally just said, God, I'm tired of it. I'm not going to do it anymore. He did exactly what we would have done. You know, God, I'm tired of this. I'm not seeing any victory. I'm tired of this. But we're still talking about Jeremiah to this day. 3,000 years later, we're still talking about Jeremiah and what he went through and how faithful he was with God. Now, does this guarantee that we, will, if we stay faithful, have, have people talking about us, you know, 1,500 years? No, but God will remember God will remember and he will bless in heaven. You know, and, I, and I can't wait to see what, what blessings there are in heaven for people. Because it is, we on earth, we look and say, well, how big was your church? How many people did you reach? How many people did you get saved? You know, did you lead to the Lord? How many, how many of these? How many people did you pray into the kingdom? Or how many people did you heal? And we all look at these numbers. And God is looking at faithfulness. Were you faithful to do what I called you to do, even when it looked like nothing was happening? Jeremiah is reaching people today. People get saved through the book of Jeremiah today. He, his words are still reaching, and now reaching people after he's dead. We do not know the impact of our words on people and our, and our actions on people, and we won't until we get to heaven. And I've actually, you know, I've re reminded everybody, think back on people that you remember before you got saved. Were they great orators giving you the, the gospel message every time they turned away? Or was it just they said something little? They did something little. They just dropped a little bit of the gospel message. They showed you the kindness of God when you were, when you were down and you didn't really understand it. Maybe you thought they were a fool, fool and being stupid for being nice to you or saying nice things. And you just little things that you just 
had trouble with, that touched you. Those people have put into your life part of what led you to Christ. And I'm going to tell you that you probably have people that you've done the same thing to in your life that you don't realize that you've touched in their life. And when you get to heaven, you know, I don't know if God's going to point it out or they'll come seeking us out or whatnot. You know, who knows how that's going to work out. But can you imagine you go to heaven and somebody comes up to you and go, I watched you and you, you live, you know, I never talked to you. You never talked to me about God, but I saw God in you. And it impacted me and that's why I'm here. This is why I'm here. We don't know how many people are going to be there because we did just something small. And, we, and I really believe that the things that are the smallest things that we think are totally insignificant are probably going to be shouted out in heaven, look at what happened, look what you did that brought this person to God. You know, and it'll be screamed out in heaven and shouted. You know, there'll be the town crier running through the streets. Hear you, hear ye. <laughs> you know, here's the newest story in the pages of heaven. <laughs> So-and-so, you know, was brought to Christ because of these people. You know, we don't know, and we won't know until we get to heaven. And this is the whole purpose of this thing. You know, your visitation is coming, and you shall fall. And it says, verse 13, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs in the tree, nor the leaf shall feed, and the things that I have given you shall pass away from them. God is saying, all the blessings that I have given you will be consumed and taken away. All of the Jews, except for a very, very small portion of the poorest of the poor, were taken out of the land. And the very poorest of the poor intermarried with the other poorest of the poor that Nebuchadnezzar put into their land and basically became the Samaritans. So we have this whole thing. And Nebuchadnezzar was a pretty wise, wise person. He just moved everybody out from one spot of his kingdom to another spot so that they would not be fighting for their land. All right? Because what ended up happening with most rulers, you know, the most recent was was Hitler when he went through and he left the, he left the uh, Dutch in, in Holland and he left the French in, in France. They were fighting for their lives. They were fighting as rebels for their land behind the enemy lines because it was their land. And they could speak the language with each other. So Nebuchadnezzar said, you know, long before that happened, he goes, you know, I'm going to make it easy. I'm shipping everybody from that land out all over the kingdom and I'm shipping people from all over the kingdom into their land. And so that the neighbors cannot talk to each other and they won't, they won't be able to, it won't be their land to fight for. So it made things easy for him. He didn't have to deal with mercenaries behind the lines fighting for their homes. And this is what he's being told. Everything that you have is going to belong to somebody else. Previous to this, if you lost your battle, all they did was make your, make your king pay tribute to the other king. And that king still got to be king over that land, but he just had to pay a huge, huge tax every year. And that's all they wanted. They, and they would build their kingdom that way. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to keep his kingdom. He didn't, because he watched all these, all these guys get tired of being taxed, saying, I'm not paying the tax anymore. And then they would give the tax money to somebody else and buy an army and, and rebel. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm not going to go through this. I'm going to make it so nobody wants to rebel. And it was pretty successful until he was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, which was a bigger, meaner army than him. And so we have all of that going on in this world, and this is the prophecy that's coming in. Everything that you have is going to be given to others. Now, and this is a pretty serious prophecy going through. Verse 14 says, why do you sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the defense cities. Let us be silent there. For the Lord our God hath put us in silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of help and behold, trouble. The snorting of his horses was heard in Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. For they are come and have devoured the land and all of it is all that is in it, the city and those that dwell therein. For behold, I will send serpents Cockatrice says among you, which will not be charmed, 
and they shall bite you, says the Lord. So here's God saying, why are you just sitting still? I have told you that you're going to be defeated. Go to the defense cities, which aren't going to be any defense. Get assembled together and quit lying to each other. And this is the one thing. When God says something's going to happen, we need to prepare for what is going to happen. And this is where we are in the days that we are. I truly believe that we are very close, if not in the last days, we are very close. Now the world will always say, well, you Christians have been saying that for 2,000 years. Yes, we have. And we're closer today than we were before. And I see that we are very close, and I think we're very close. But why do I want to teach this? Is because we need to prepare our hearts for what's coming in the last days. Trials and tribulations and hardships. That is not the gospel that's preached in North America. North America preaches blessings, wealth, and, and good, good tidings. Come to Jesus and everything will be good. Well, I don't know what verses they're using in the Bible to preach that gospel. But that is what is being preached. And when the hard times come, the people are not going to be ready. Now, I'm not teaching this to be paranoid and make people afraid, but I want people to prepare their hearts and put their trust in God. Put the trust in God because God is calling them. Quit sitting around, he tells the people. Go get yourselves in defense. And he really wants them to repent. And he says, the Lord God has put us in silent and given us the water of gall to drink. That is literally the bile of the liver. That very sour, you know, uh, digestive juices if you throw up you, you feel that gull uh, and he says that is what God has given us to drink it is not refreshing it, does, it makes you sick just to, 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 to even smell it and he says this is what he's, he's given that to drink because of our sinful nature and the reason for it in verse 14 is because we have sinned against the Lord God does not let sin go unpunished ultimately. There's always a consequence for sin. And many times we look at people and think they're getting away with their sin because we don't see what God is doing in their life. You know, we see these people, they seem to be getting everywhere. You know, they're, they're philanderers and adulterers and fornicators and steal and cheat people and they get rich. And we're looking... God, how can such evil people be blessed? And if we really got to know them, we'd find out they're not blessed. They are totally unhappy. They are miserable. They can't trust anybody. They don't know what's going on you know, around them. And we look at them and say, well, God, look how blessed they are. They got the house on the, they got that mansion on the hill in the, in the multi-million dollar uh, neighborhood. They've got all kinds of cars. They've got servants. They've got, they've got fans. They've got people following them. They, you know, they, you know, E.F. Hudden, you know, when, what was the commercial? When E.F. Hudden speaks, people listen. They go, they're, they're, they've got uh, respect. People are listening to them, and they're still not happy. If you get to know them, they're not happy. How do we know? Again, I've said this several times. How many of them check themselves into rehab houses for alcohol and drugs and commit suicide because they're not happy? And we look at them saying, gee, they were so blessed. How could they be? Why would they have committed uh, suicide for how, you know, they had everything, but they never had what was needed, and that was God. And they, they had the goal and the bitterness and it says, we looked for peace, but no good came, and for a time of health, and behold, trouble. This is what the world is looking for. They're looking for peace. You know, and the problem that we have with the world today is they believe a lot of lies to begin with. The world starts on a foundation, and Billy and I were talking about this a little bit before. The world starts on a foundation of man is basically good. And then when bad things happen and people do terrible things and go on, what in the world would have caused this good person to do such an awful, terrible thing? And their conclusions are dumb. 
It's not the people doing it, it's their situation or the fact that they had a gun or a car or a knife or they found a cliff to be able to jump over or they found drugs to, to take or whatever it might be, but it's not the person who was bad in their mindset because they start with the wrong starting place. Now in scripture we know that man is evil in his heart, so the, the question for us is, we're more surprised when people do good without having some ulterior motive for their good. You know, man can be good as long as they get their name on the wall or you know, their name in the paper or people say, oh, look how good you were. Man can be, do good as long as they get something out of it, but it takes God in our life to do good for no reason at all. And this is the difference between God's people who understand his way of thinking and the world's way of thinking. The world is all about blame and, and you know, something had to happen to make these good people bad. You know, it was all your rules, you, you good people over there, you, you, you Christians who think everybody is bad, and it's your rules that made them bad. They responded bad to your rules. Instead of our rules tamping down the evil. You know, and I've said this several times, you know, if you've ever been around a baby, babies are very selfish. When they want something, they scream. And they scream until they get what they want. And they keep doing that until we teach them not to be so selfish, which happens hopefully by the time they're four or five years old. And in today's world, it doesn't happen at all. We have selfish adults because they never learn to be not selfish. And, you know, because the world says, well, they're basically good, so we're going to reward them for all the good they do. And we're trying to make them good people by, by, you know, because that's who they are in their core. We'll, we'll reward the good and they'll become, they'll become what we think they are in the first place. And all they do is become very selfish as an adult. Instead of saying, God's got rules to help us learn to be obedient to him, to temper our selfishness, to temper our attitudes. And so it all comes down to whose truth are we going to believe? God? Or the world and hopefully for all of us it's going to be God because it ultimately is he is truth and this is what he's saying to them you go who are you going to believe and he says you were looking for peace uh, but no good came you were looking for health and behold trouble or uh, terror or dismay and then he goes into this scripture and we talked about this last week on the horses as well they, the snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. For they are come and have devoured the land and all that is in it and the city and those that dwell therein. For behold, I will send serpents, cockatrice among you, which will not be charmed and they shall bite you, says the Lord. Talks about his war machine. You know, and this is something that people don't like to think about God. They like to think, oh, God is so loving and kind, anything goes. But there's a lot of verses that talk about God's anger and his army coming against sin. And he says, you think that you're going to get away with your doing? Not only will Nebuchadnezzar come, but I will stand against you. And then he says, I'm going to send in serpents. And it says cockatrice in, in King James, but it's vipers, which are a different type of snake. Serpents and vipers. To, that, will, that cannot be charmed, that shall bite you. And, you know, I've, not, I've seen it on TV, but I don't know for sure whether snakes can be charmed like that, but apparently they can uh, be, and I don't want to try it. <laughs> I don't want to be around when somebody's charming them. Uh, but God says, I'm going to send these, these dangerous snakes and vipers, and you're not going to be able to charm them. And they're going to bite you. And in their day and age, a bite from any of these poisonous uh, snakes was completely deadly. Even in our day and age, if you don't get to the hospital fast enough or a doctor fast enough, they're deadly. Uh, we, can save, we can save them if you can get to the hospital fast enough to get the anti-venom. And hopefully then you don't get uh, diseases because apparently the snake's mouth is extremely unhygienic. And I've actually met a couple people who have been bit by the snakes, and they spent a year to two years with infected legs, not from the venom, 
but from all the bacteria and diseases that the snake's mouth carries. And so the venom is bad enough, and then you have everything else that goes on if you can happen to get past the venom. You've got other diseases that are going to bother you. And he says, these are all coming to get you. He goes, you think you can get away from the army? All right, fine. I'm going to send snakes your way. And if you think about that, it's kind of an interesting statement. How do you get away from the army? You go into holes and pits and ditches and, and caves. And what do you find in those holes, ditches, and caves? You find your snakes. That's places snakes love to be. They like to hide out in nice, cool, damp places. And so everywhere you're going to hide from the army, you're going to find snakes is what God is saying. Yeah, pretty sad point of, point of uh, statement. You're not going to be safe anyway, anywhere. And if you've ever taken a time in your life where you have run from God and tried to get away from God, doesn't it seem like that? Everywhere you turn, there's an enemy. And if it's not an enemy, it seems to be natural disasters. And if it's not natural disasters, it's your finances. And if it's not your finances, you know, it's something else. And uh, your, your vehicles are breaking down. Your home's falling around, down apart around you. And, you know, everything seems to be going wrong when you're trying to go against God. And here God is saying... I'm going to send an army against you, and if you don't like that, if you get away from the army, I've got snakes coming after you. you know, and we've all probably been there at some point in our life where we just tried to challenge God, and everywhere we turned, there's like a roadblock and a problem and an issue. And, you're, and you get to the place where hopefully you say, God, I finally give up. I'm tired of fighting you. And we see this issue that God's saying, this is coming your way. I'm going to send all of these issues to your direction. And verse 18 says, When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Behold, the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in, in a far country, is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black, astonishment hath taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? So here's the lament that's coming in. You know, first off it says, When I would comfort myself against the sorrow, my heart is faint in me. You know, when I would comfort myself against sorrow, the very innermost part of my being is faint, he says. And this is quite a place, and if we've ever been there, it's, it's hard. When you're so far from God and nothing seems to be going good and you, and you want comfort, you want, you know, and I've had been there where I've tried to turn to God at times in my own way, not his way, God, I'm going to do things, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to repent, but I'm going to do some things. I'm going to do some traditions. And everything would be blocked. And my motivation would eventually die down. My willpower would die down. And because I'm a stubborn person and my willpower is strong, God has had to work over me, work me over the coals on more than one occasion in my lifetime because I just would not give up. And says, Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far land. So here he's talking about the attack. The attack of the visitation. This was going to be Nebuchadnezzar ultimately. But before Nebuchadnezzar, you had Assyria rise up and they conquered all of the northern kingdom and threatened the, north, the southern kingdom. And now Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and people are looking and Jeremiah is saying, He's coming. He's going to take this, this nation. And a matter of fact, we have even Isaiah saying, we, you are going to go into captivity for 70 years and Cyrus will send you back home. They knew how long they were going to be in captivity. Daniel was reading the scriptures and he, was, and he noted that 70 years in captivity. Now he was a young teen when he was captured so that he lived to be a very old age. Let's say he was 12 years old when he got captured and he's reading going and he's, he's, he's meeting Cyrus and he's going Cyrus is going to send people home he had to be in his 80s when that happened 
because he's reading and said, I'm sure he went to Cyrus and said, hey, Cyrus, see, your name's in this, in this book. This is, and Cyrus going, yeah, when was that written? 150 years ago? You know, had to have been something that would make him astonished that his name was in their Bible and the timing was just perfect to send them home. You know, and this is what's going on. He says, this far country... And then their answer, their answer is just what we've been talking about. They keep saying it. Is not the Lord in Zion? Translation, isn't God up there on the mountain in the temple? Isn't the in Zion, Jerusalem, the temple? This is God's place. He will never let it go. This is the cry of the people. And is not her king in her? The king's here also. Now, their king wasn't a very good king. He was very evil, but they're going, our king is here. And God's answer is, why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and their strange vanities? God is saying, they keep worshiping everything but me. They're worshiping these idols. You know, and I think in our day and age, we're looking at so many people that are worshiping idols. And I love the definition I heard about an idol. An idol is anything that is, takes the place of God. So what can be an idol? Oh, just about anything. For some people, it might be their car, their house, their family, their job. For many people, it's their TV. You know, hours and hours and hours in front of their TV and not giving God a single thought. Could be pleasure. Some people have an idol of pleasure. Now, none of these idols will ever fulfill people. They will always leave us empty. And this is what God is saying. They're strange vanities. They're strange emptiness. You know, in many places, he goes, you're, you're worshiping these idols that have ears that can't hear, eyes that can't see, mouths that can't speak, arms that can't you know, move, hold, help you, and legs that can't move. You know, over and over again, he goes, why are you worshiping these false images? And one of the ones I, I find so interesting, I believe it was in Isaiah, goes, you, you go down, you chop down a tree, with half of it you make an idol, and with half of it you make a fire and burn your bread. Make, uh, bake your bread, it's not burn your bread, break, bake your bread. And he goes, how can these things be happening? And you, when you think about that, that's got to be one of the stupidest things. I'm going to take and I'm going to make half the tree into an idol and worship it as God, and the rest of the tree I'm going to burn up and, and, and cook my dinner. You know, only half that tree was, was God, and the other half was just dinner. You know, and yet people think in this duplistic thinking where I can do this and this, and even though they're diametrically opposed, I'm going to believe both of them. In our day, it's manifest by this whole idea that there is no absolute truth. And they will go out and tell you, you know, we have a problem with uh, global warming. It's getting warm, warm but now it's, global climate, it's climate change because it's, it's getting cold. And, and you go, well, which is it? Yes. Well, which is it? Is it global warming or is it climate? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm against killing people, but I believe in, in, in abortion. Well, isn't abortion killing a baby? No. Nope. No, nope, not killing. It's not killing. You know, they believe things that are totally opposite and will tell you that both are true. You know, they will tell you that man is basically good, but they do a lot of bad things. Well, which is it? Are they good or bad? Yes. And I've had these conversations. You think I'm joking about these conversations? I've had these conversations with people where they say two diametrically opposed views within a minute of each other, and I ask them which one's true, and they'll tell me literally yes or both. I'm going, but they're opposites. The sky cannot be black and, and, and bright at the same time. It is. <laughs> Why? Because they're deceived. They're deceived in their dishonesty, and they don't understand what it is. They're provoking God with all of these strange uh, vanities. He says, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. This is the people talking. 
This is the people talking, and this is Jeremiah most likely talking. I have preached, I have preached, I have preached. The summer is past. The harvest has been taken. And we are not saved. You did not repent. You did not respond to the harvest. And now you are going to be judged. This will happen in the end days. When after the rapture and the church is gone, people are going to be left behind wondering what happened. What in the world has happened as all of the evil falls upon them? 21 judgments from God on top of the fact that Satan is reigning and doing what he thinks is right, which is all vanity and evil, and God is bringing judgment upon them in 21, uh, 21 trials and tribulations, trying to get their attention, and they're going to go, ah, who cares? You know, we are just having a seven-year string of bad luck. You know, and it's an amazing thing to me how many people don't believe in the providence of God. If things bad happen to them, it's like, I'm just the unluckiest person in the world. I've had nothing but bad luck. I must have broke a mirror, broke a mirror or walked under, walked under a ladder or something, or a black cat passed my path. You know, you know, too many times these things have happened, and I've got a long string of bad luck. I must have broke eight mirrors. I've had bad luck for all my life. I don't know when I broke these mirrors, but I've had nothing but bad luck. And they don't believe that God is in control. And this is the thing that we need to really fully understand. When God allows things in our life, he's got a reason for it. And I've always loved the example, and it's one of the, one of the great examples from the hiding place. Corey Tenbooms, they were in the concentration camp, and there were lice in, lice, uh, fleas in the, in, the, in the bunk. And Corey said to Betsy, her sister, I will never be thankful, because they were reading of Thanks and everything, she said, I'll never be thankful for the fleas. And her sister looked at her and said, the guards don't come into this, this bunk, this, this dorm, and molest us like they do all the other dorms. Now, that's a pretty good reason to be, be thankful for the fleas. What am I saying? If we look at when God's perspective, he has a reason. Now, he may not show us that reason in our lifetime, but he will show us the reason for what he's doing. And we don't understand that sometimes when bad things happen, they're not as bad as they could have been. And God might just show us in heaven, hey, you went through this, but this was the alternative. This path over here, you went, you went through the narrow, the narrow road up that hill, but this one had a great big pit, and the road just ended, and you would have fallen off the cliff. You wouldn't have just had a troublesome climb. You would have fallen off the cliff because there's no path at a certain point. You know, we don't know what it is that God is protecting us from. We don't know if he's putting us through hard times so that we can be example to other Christians and other people. You know, our faithfulness might just motivate somebody else and we may never know that they were motivated because they watched us stay faithful. Now they may not realize how hard it was for us to stay faithful. They may not care about how hard it was for us to be faithful. They just saw us stay faithful. They saw us go to church every Sunday. They saw us being helpful to other people when it didn't make sense. They saw us being nice to enemies when it didn't make any sense to be nice to an enemy. We don't know what is going to be used. I wonder how many of Jesus' examples were not mentioned in the Bible that go beyond anything that we can imagine. Just the kind words. The little kind words he said here, there, and to the other person. Do you realize that your kind words sometimes probably mean more to people than anything else? Especially to somebody who's not used to hearing kind words. You know, out at the prison, I am very kind to the prisoners for the most part. You know, I'm respectful of them, I'm kind to them. Now I can be hard if I have to be, but usually, usually I don't have to be. I, been very respectful, you know, and I violate one of the biggest rules out there. You're supposed to say inmate Smith, and I call him Mr. Smith or Mr. Jo Jones or whatever. I just, to me, inmate is degrading. And I know that their reason is to put them in their place, but I think it's 
demeaning and everything, and I don't use it because I think it's wrong. I think it's a bad, bad way to address them. Uh, now, if I'm trying to get them to do my, you know, get back inmate, you know, is <laughs> a different story. Uh, but I would probably just say, get back, stay back over there, you know. Uh, and I don't have that much problem with it. But what is going on? Are we standing for God? Are we going to be saved by what God does? Are we going to participate in the harvest? And, or are we going to be left behind and unsaved? And this is even in our daily life. Am I going to participate in the harvest of God by obeying? Or am I being left behind the harvest and having to struggle and being the bad example and being the one that people look at and say, well, that's another Christian hypocrite. That one right over there points somewhere nobody's at. <laughs> is that, that's the Christian hypocrite. And we need to be careful that we're not doing that, that we're standing for him and being part of the harvest. And it says, for the hurt of my daughter of my people am I hurt. I have always believed this statement. God hurts when we hurt. He does not like to see his people in pain. And I would include all of his people, not just his actual children, because he's saying the daughter of my people. This is Jerusalem. Most of them were not followers of him. He says, when they hurt, I hurt. When I'm having to bring discipline on my, my children, I hurt, is what God is saying. God is not up there in heaven saying, all right, who can I beat on today? I just can't wait to find out who I'm going to beat on today and, and make life miserable. And I've told people all the time, because I'm a, I believe God is all for corporal punishment and capital punishment, and I've told people, they go, well, a lot of people beat their kids. I'm going, well, you know what I got? If somebody can spank their kid or discipline their kid and not feel the pain of that discipline on themselves, they shouldn't be doing it. My dad always said, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you when the, when the belt came out. And as a kid, I'm going, yeah, right. I'm the one that's not going to be able to sit down. First time I had to spank one of my kids, guess what I was saying? This is, going to, this is hurting me more than it's hurting you, and I know what they were thinking. Same thing I was thinking. Yeah, right, Dad. I'm the one that's not going to be able to sit down after this is done. But I did not want to hurt my kids physically, but I also knew that they needed the discipline so that they would be not wanting to do it again. And this is the thing about discipline. Discipline must hurt or it's not discipline. It has to make us not want to repeat the activity again. Now, for those of us who are stubborn, that means God has to do some pretty harsh discipline. All right? For some, all God does do is look your way and say, what are you doing? Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to do it again. I wasn't one of those people. <laughs> All right. Uh, God had to get out the two by four, maybe even the eight by eight, <laughs> and, and hit me over and over again because of how stubborn I was most of the time. But he's saying, I hurt when my children hurt. God is looking down and saying, I don't want to do this. And it says he was black or mourning for their impudence their, in their astonishment. He was not understanding their, anger, their disappointment. He was wanting to get them to turn to him and obey. And here we are looking at God saying, I want this. And this is why I truly believe that when God sends people into the, the lake of fire for eternity, I really believe that he's going to be hurting. There will be tears in his eyes. I paid the debt. I tried over and over to draw you to me, and you rejected me. And now I have to give you what you wanted. And I don't want to be doing this, but it is what you wanted, and I have to give it to you. And I believe that there will be tears in his eyes because of the, or at least pain, maybe not tears, but pain in him to say, I'm having to cast you, my created child, into the lake of fire for eternity. And he goes, then he goes, is there no bomb in Gilead and no physician there? 
Gilead was famous for its healing ointments. And so here he's saying, is there no, is there no, but it's a rhetorical question. There, you, things are going so bad for you, isn't there something in Gilead that can heal? You think the world's ways are going to heal you? And he goes, no, there aren't. Is there no physicians there? Again, Gilead was known for its bombs. It was known for its physicians. If you were sick in that area, you went to Gilead. If nobody could help you in your, in your town, you went to Gilead. They had the best doctors, the best bombs. And here Jeremiah is saying, is there no bomb? Is there no physicians? Uh, why then is there not health in the daughter of my people to recover? He's going, the world's ways are not going to get you healed. The world's ways are not going to bring you back to recovery. And this is why it's so important for us as we go through our life to do things God's way and not the way of the world. How do we do things God's way? We learn God's way. It's pretty simple. We learn his ways and the Holy Spirit comes in and convicts us of, of the world's ways and God's ways. And then we reject the world's ways. Now, I understand that that's easier said than done, especially if we're filling our mind with the world's ways. If I'm spending all my time watching television and reading worldly books and, what, and, and watching the news that is all about the world's way of things, and I'm being educated in the world system, and I'm not reading the word of God and understanding and being taught, I am going to be sick. Because I'm going to be doing everything the wrong way. But the more I get taught God's word, and the more I let it take over my life, the more I can be healed. The more I can follow his way. Now the flip side of that is the more I obey God and follow his way, the more I'm going to be rejected by the world. You know, it's kind of a two-way. I'm happy and pleased with God and the world's going to reject me. Or I can have, be rejected by God and have the world accept me and be miserable and unhappy because it's all vanity anyway. So I, by my choice... I want to follow God. Let the world reject me. It's not that big a deal to me if the world rejects me because ultimately this world is not my final home. This world is a very short time. Even if I was blessed to live as long as Methuselah in 969 years, this world is just a short time frame. Now none of us are ever going to live that long. I don't believe any of us are going to live anywhere close to 900 years. But you understand what I'm saying. Even if somehow we were blessed to live that way and the world was against us the entire time and we lived a miserable life for 969 years in this world, we have all of eternity to look forward to. This is why Paul said these little things that I'm going through are nothing compared to the glory that awaits me in heaven. And his little light things were beatings, shipwrecks, uh, being chased out of cities, uh, you know, having people attack him, call him names, you know, just little things that most people would be stopped cold in their, in their tracks over. And what does he call them? These light afflictions, uh, using his term in the King James. Little things. These, these light afflictions of this world are nothing compared to the glory that awaits. Where is our focus when we're going through things? Are we focused in that God has a home for us in heaven? Or is our focus on the temporal world? If it's on the temporal world, then we have to focus on being accepted by the temporal world and not on God. If we're focused in heaven, then we're going, God, what, what can I do that pleases you? What can I do that you are going to be happy with and, and be rewarding me for? I don't care what happens in this world. And this is where our focus has to be. I am looking forward to the day that my spirit leaves this body and I go to be with the Father. Now, am I looking forward to so much that I'm going to go out and commit suicide? No, I'm just looking forward to the day that God says, it's time to come home. You've had enough time on earth. You know, and it's really interesting that when we go through all of this, how short life is. You know, uh, you know, just something simple like my mom getting sick today and ended up in the hospital. I had plans for today. I was supposed to be at work and doing a bunch of stuff at work. It didn't get done, I'm sure, because nobody else probably did it. But my plans 
ended because something else overcame, you know, took more precedence than that. There's coming a day when we're going to have plans and God's saying, I don't care what your plans are, you're coming home. I don't care how many doctor's appointments you had and how many business deals you had and where you were going, it is time to come home. And our day is over and our reward starts and we'll get to see things from the other side of the tapestry and go, wow, God, is that why you did all of these things in my life? That person actually got saved because of what you did over here? You used this to make me ready for this? And maybe, you know, if we use the idea of the tapestry, which has been a famous thing, you know, we see things on the knotted, ugly side of the tapestry. Maybe God just needed a dark spot on that tapestry and you were the one that got to be the dark spot on that tapestry. You know, to make the picture stand out. Now, when we look at it from the other side, we're going, oh, I guess, oh, you had to do that. Oh, you did. You had to do that. So that picture would be perfect. I don't know what the purpose of all of God is. He's, he's higher and, and more smart than we are. He has reasons that we can't fully understand. And all we need to learn to do is trust. Trust in him wholeheartedly. And say, God, I am going to trust you when good things seem to be happening and when bad things seem to be happening. Because God, you have everything under control. And that to me is my strongest reason to be satisfied with God. He has never lost control. He has never gone on vacation and forgotten about us. He has never been caught in the shower when the phone rings. Okay, He is always there knowing what's going on in full control even when we think that he isn't. And that should give us great comfort. Even when all things seem to be going against us, God is still has a plan and he says, this is what I'm allowing. You know, and this is why I like the book of Job. When you look at Job, everything seemed to be going wrong. If you were in Job's place, you know, we have it easy. We know, we know what the ending is. But, you know, and we know what the beginning is. We know that Satan went to God and said, you know, God, you know, I'd like to go take Job and go. God says, okay, you can do this to Job. You can do this to Job. You can do this to Job. We know the story. And because God's saying it, we go, okay, God, you must have some reason for it. And then we see that God restores him at the end of the end of it after he teach Job, teaches Job some lessons. But we, if you were in Job's place, you didn't know anything about heaven, the heavenly council. All you know is that you were rich and now you have nothing. You were healthy and now you're scraping the sores with the, the clay pot. You had friends who are now attacking you because you were, they believe that you're bad. And your whole life is miserable. And we don't know how long that whole life was miserable. You know, 30, 38 or so chapters of misery. <laughs> but we don't know how long that was. And I don't think it was a short, short time. That was, I don't think it was years, but I don't think it was a very short period of time that these people are harassing him with their messages of how evil and bad he must be because all these bad things are happening to him. And poor Job. You know, he does not understand any of this stuff. He is suffering. His wife even gets on, you know, gets on him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? You know, and I kind of think that she did it out of a love. You know, I'm willing to say that she loved him so much. Job, I can't watch you. I can't watch you suffer any longer. Just curse God and get it over with. You know, just die. You know, get, you know, get, it, get it over with. God has turned against you so bad, and you know, he calls her a foolish woman. You know, can't, we can't take the, good, you know, the, good from, uh, the bad from God as, as well as the good. Job was very good for a long time in his belief until... These guys just harangued him for so long. And, you know, and you've got to remember with, with friends like Job had, who needs any enemies? <laughs> you know, and sometimes we need to be careful. Who are our friends that we surround ourselves with? Are we surrounding ourselves with good Christian people that are going to encourage us? Or the world, worldly Christians and world that are going to lead us into walking away from God if we're not careful? And we need to be very careful because all of these things come against us when everything seems to be going bad. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Lord, help us to look at you 
and understand that you are always in charge and that you have a plan and it is a good plan and we thank you in Jesus name amen listening friends where will you be when you die we ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes and the biggest answer we'll get is I hope I will be in heaven if hope is your answer you don't know God and this is a problem we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church P.O. Box 65 Chloride Arizona 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.